Hey folks, you're listening to Scribbles and Spills, the podcast where creatives of all kinds expound on their art and spill their secrets. I'm your host, C.E. Hoffman, an author and screenwriter living with mental illness. You can find my books at cehoffman.net and follow me on Twitter at C.E. Hoffman too. It's a real treat introducing our next guest. I loved chatting with her on her own podcast, The Writing Sparrow. It's awesome. You should check it out. And I'm super excited to have her here today. Serena Langer is a dark fantasy author of both epic and urban paranormal novels. She's as obsessed with books and stationery now as she was as a child when she scribbled her first stories on corridor walls. She's published nine books so far. Check out her website at serenalanger.com and follow her on Twitter at Serena underscore Langer and Instagram is Serena Langer Writer. Serena, thanks for being on the show and, of course, crossing time zones to get here. Hey, it's so good to be here. And can I just say, this was the most soothing introduction I've ever heard. Your voice is so relaxing. That is so nice because I, I was just lauding your beautiful accent. So you complimenting <laughs> my North American drawl is substantially flattering. No, honestly, I just listened to you and thought, damn, see, you're so smooth. <laughs> it's, it's so nice. That's so nice. You're so sweet, especially because I was actually worried. I was botching up your bio a little bit because, of course, with our time zones, I know you're probably on like the downside part of your day and here yeah. I am and it's morning for me and usually I'm a morning person but today I've been like a zombie so I'm glad that's not yet like a palpable effect <laughs> no not at all well, I really feel that it's been quite a long week for me because I'm well we're recording this back in July right so I'm just sort of now preparing for the next advanced reader copies to go out I'm preparing for the next um, cover reveal. Maybe by the time this goes live, the book will already be out. But I'm really starting to feel the week now, so I'm actually a bit tired myself. And this is the last thing I do today. I'm getting hungry, so <laughs> I completely know what you mean. I'm there as well. But I've got my hot chocolate, and it's it's a bit chocolatier than I wanted it to be because I totally thought I could finish what I had left in the thing and I couldn't there was it, it yeah there was deceptively more in there than I thought so it's chocolatey that um it's more chocolatey than I wanted it to be and I still have some left so I'm going to be on a sugar eye in a minute <laughs> that's pretty great though you know I always feel like our conversations are kind of supercharged and now they will be all the more so on account of chocolatey goodness Yes, all really relaxed because we're both tired. <laughs> <laughs> Which is cool too. I mean, I've always, you know, loved that. We haven't connected much, but I feel like there's a real a real connectivity, you know, regardless of the lack of actual colloquy yes. so far. Yes, you say we haven't connected much. And I mean, this is only the second time that we've sort of talked in person, thanks to the magical interwebs. But I do feel like we've connected on, on a soul level more. So I'm really excited to talk to you again, especially on your own show. Oh, thank you so much. And I so agree. I think that's one of the most gratifying things about being able to connect with other artists is I feel as a rule, we're higher in trait openness. So we are drawn 
to those more soulful, abstractive levels of thought and of sharing, right? Because that's what conversation is. It's sharing. Yes, absolutely. And we have a lot to share today. Sorry, go on. No, no. I like, I totally agree. There's so much going on. And, you know, you were mentioning, of course, that we are recording this pretty well in advance because I am trying to kind of keep up with a publication schedule for this podcast. And of course, you have so much going on all the time. So I'm wondering, is it kind of fun and also surreal for you to be sitting down here in July and then thinking of when this will be released and everything that's occurring for you in your career between those times oh yeah i am really hoping i won't jinx anything <laughs> so, because by the time this episode goes live i will hopefully knock on wood fingers crossed everything i can do for good luck i will hopefully have published um the first book in my plant ecology and i'm hoping to be getting close with my third book in the Bloodwist trilogy as well so i'm really hoping i won't jinx anything today by talking about it like it's already happened but i feel like you're very conscientious you're very structured you know where you're going with your writing which is a big deal so i feel like no matter what you i don't feel like you're someone who could be deterred from getting done what you want <laughs> to get done no i'm not very easily deterred <laughs> And now you're working on several series at the same time. Is that, wow, is that difficult for plot structuring? Yes, but possibly not for the reason you might think. So the Blood Whist trilogy is very different in tone to the first book in the Decology. So, well, by the time this goes out, the name is going to be public. So I think I can say it. So, <laughs> so the Decology um, the, the series title will be Chaos of, Ka of Esther Anderson, and the first book is called A Dream of Death and Magic. So if I talk about death and magic or a dream of, that's the book. Not plans I've got. But, <laughs> but the tone in both of those books is so incredibly different, and the main characters have such different voices that switching between the two is actually kind of difficult. So... Yeah, it's it's interesting, but I would definitely say that it's got its own challenges. See, I love your self-awareness in regards to craft, because as soon as you said tone, that just struck me. It's such a struggle, even just within one book, to maintain a unique tone and a unique verbiage for each character, especially if you're splitting narration, but even just in dialogue. Like I'm reading, huh, I'm trying to read Dostoevsky right now. I'm reading The Brothers Karamazov. And, oh, wow. And, and it's great. It's great for focus. I, <laughs> <laughs> which you can understand balancing so many different worlds. It requires a yeah. similar kind of focus and discipline. But one of my complaints, and it might just be a translation problem, you know, or my own ignorance, because this is definitely one of the first real bricks of a classic I've ever encountered. But that's kind of almost a complaint I have is that apart from maybe the father who has a pretty unique voice, almost everyone else, you know, they'll just collapse into this like super, super verbose dialogue, you know, monologues essentially. And to me, a lot of them are written the same 
you know, so I feel like even for a, a genius like Dostoevsky, it seems like it's easier for so many of us to just let each character speak as a part of us, but they're all speaking for us. But it sounds like you're really working hard to let the characters be themselves. How do you do that? Well, in Death and Magic, it was actually kind of easy because Esther and I are pretty much the same person. And her best friend is strongly based on my best friend and found sister. So in, in that regard, that one has been quite easy. But then switching again to the Bloodwurst trilogy, where I've, well, as we're recording this, I've just published the second book and... By the time this goes live, I'm hoping that the third one is going to catch up a bit as well. It's, I mean, the character's voice is so different that it's been really difficult to come back to it and take myself out of the, oh, she should sound like me because they're basically the same person. And going back to, she's a complete, you know, she's someone completely different and it needs to match, obviously, the first two books in tone and in voice and for her personality, but also taking her character development into account, which is really going to come full circle now in the third book. While I'm also really just wanting to write the first sequel to Esther, which again is going to be that very different voice. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> it sounds fun. It sounds like a fun challenge. Like you're playing literary hopscotch in a way. Yes, that's exactly how it feels. And do you think you're drawn to that because you really do enjoy diverse narration? Like, do you think you are more satisfied with getting to go into a different mindset? I probably am. And I think it also really helps if you feel a bit stuck in one story or if you just really need a break from it to then be able to go to a different project and have something completely different in front of you because it then really feels like you're getting that break that you need. I think if both of those books were too similar, then I wouldn't really be able to go from one to the other and have that um, recharged feel after a writing session or an editing session because I wouldn't really be getting away from anything so much, I suppose. So, yeah. <laughs> That's great. So in a way, skipping back and forth between these very different voices is how you let each manuscript sit as well. Yes, I'm trying not to do too much skipping back and forth right now. I should be focusing on the edits of Bloodbound, really. But I think we both know what it's like when, you know, when a release day is coming up slowly and you really just want to focus on that. So, as I said earlier, this week has been very focused on the cover reveal and getting the advanced reader copies ready and all of that. So, I haven't done as much skipping between and I'm trying to finish one thing before I go to the next one because those two aren't even my only projects so I'm just trying to balance everything so that all of my characters are hopefully equally happy <laughs> and do you feel that everything does get done at the right time yes well it's difficult <laughs> Um, I do think that everything gets done at the right time, but I think I have, like most creatives, I think, I always have that self-doubt and I always get a bit of imposter syndrome, especially so close to release day. So just before um, 
I logged on to chat with you, actually, I did a bit of shadow work about exactly that. And I know we'll get to more of this in a minute as well, because today there has been a fair bit of self-doubt about me not doing enough. It's one of my big problems, you know, just this mindset that I'm never working enough, no matter how much I've done. And today, just writing out everything that I did do for dream off has really helped me realize that actually I have done a lot and sure there are other things I can do but good news they'll still be there next week they're not going anywhere so it's all right it's fine things are getting done in their own time and it's not like I'm behind on anything you know so it's fine I need to relax more (laughs) oh I think that is the mantra of anyone who's highly conscientious I need to relax more (laughs) Yes, actually this year I've made it um, a personal challenge and a goal to prioritize that balance more and to make time for self-care because that is so important. A few years ago I burned out so badly, it took me roughly two and a half months to just feel like myself again and I do not want to repeat of that. (laughs) So I am making it more of a focus to make time for self-care But of course, then you always get those thoughts of why are you sitting down with a coloring book or an audio book or why are you having fun? You have you have more things to get done, you know, but I'm getting there. I'm getting to a point now slowly where I can say, yeah, but I can still do this tomorrow. In fact, I know that I will do this tomorrow. Look at everything I have done today. I'm doing great. I do not need to push myself into burnout. And actually, balance is so important. So I'm not willing to budge on this anymore. This is a priority now and I'm not changing my mind on it. (laughs) I love that. The importance of creating boundaries with yourself, especially those shadow aspects to our traits. Yes, I I love that you said um, boundaries with yourself. Because I think often when we talk about boundaries, it's for other people. But we need to set boundaries for ourselves as well, definitely. And I think self-care is the big one that people tend to neglect. Oh, yeah. Regardless of where your shadow is coming from. And I feel like what we're getting into here, we're getting into perfectionism and we're getting into sort of workaholic tendencies. I think all of which can be traced back to really conscientious people because we we have a lot of guilt you know for whatever you know deep spiritual reason whether that is just tapping into you know the the collective for the collective guilt we all possess and we really feel like we well maybe I'm projecting here I know I really identify my worth with my work and I think another right and I think another problem is that we you know it's exactly what you're describing this idea of like we need to teach ourselves to just relax and teach ourselves to have fun but i think another problem <laughs> problem with being conscientious is that we do find work fun we enjoy it we like being busy we like checking things off the list you know so i'm wondering at what point you learned to differentiate productive fun with technically unproductive fun, like a coloring book or just relaxing? When did you start to discern the difference? So for me, it was um, that time when I burned out so badly, what I just mentioned. Um, I had been editing someone's book for a while. It was quite a heavy edit. And eventually I just realized that I sat down at my desk and I opened the document 
and I think I just started crying. I literally couldn't do it anymore. Like my body was just shutting down. I, like my mind was not having it and one more day. So I closed everything down and I emailed my author and said, I'm so sorry, I've burned out. I can't keep working on this right now. Um, I mean, fortunately, she was so lovely and she completely understood it and she was really grateful for all the work I'd done on it until then. And she was so understanding, bless her. I'm so grateful that she was so understanding. And um, I just left the project right then and there. And I, as I said, I needed two and a half months to recover. But I realized that the things that I would normally do to feel better or feel rejuvenated again weren't working. And I had to really think about why the horse, because normally I might sit down with a book and just read for a bit and I'd feel better, right? Many writers, I think, have that. You know, we, we can read just for fun and it's okay again. It makes everything better, books do. But I found that wasn't the case anymore. And I found that even story-driven video games weren't working anymore, even though there was nothing related to writing. And I realized that what I'd really burned out on were just any formal stories and that was really bizarre to me for reasons <laughs> I can't quite put my finger on because stories should be joyful and it's just it wasn't anymore and I never thought that I would ever get to that point but that just shows you how badly I'd burnt out so I realized that I didn't really have anything I could think of that I loved doing that I found relaxing that wasn't in some way story related so I really had to think about what I might do that would help relax me and that would help me recover from the burnout that wasn't reading a book or playing a game or writing a short story or, you know, just anything not story related. And that's how I came to coloring books and just sitting down maybe with a podcast or even just music and just coloring in a very complex or very simple picture. I took up knitting around the same time because it's such a nice mindless activity once you're you know into the flow of it so that was my breaking point and it was a big one that is so incredible and again i i think it speaks so loudly to your immense self-awareness like there's so much content there i almost just want to <laughs> let it sit for a bit but i'll also just kind of let my you know my speech flow intuitively because one of the things that really, really came up for me there, I mean, it's a fascinating thing because it's true. Stories are our bread and butter and they're also the meat of the spiritual world. But at the same time, I feel like stories are also kind of an analytical approach to the soul and the spirit and the psyche and to self-development. Like it's that analytical way of breaking down these archetypes, you know, and these really fluid intuitive processes in a way that we can effectively consolidate and understand them. And it sounds like you really needed to just go into a non-linear space with your muse, which I think is the space from which muse truly arrives. Do you agree with that? Yes, completely agree. And in fact, that's exactly what I try to do now when I talk about self-care or just prioritizing my mental health. You know, I mean, I will shut down my laptop. I will not be reading anything. Well, sometimes I might listen to an audiobook, but between you and me, it's probably going to be smart at the moment. <laughs> so 
you know, or, or I'll knit something or I have a coloring book with just some music and just make sure that I really give my brain a break from all the editing and the writing and the reading and just consuming words and more stories. And if all else fails, there's always shadow work, which I know I tend to sit down with a notebook and write. So you might say that it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but you know, if nothing else, I can always write myself through why I'm doubting myself or why I'm pushing myself into burnout. And then, as you said, this is for me a very analytical kind of writing where I can just sit down with myself and just go, right, why am I feeling like this? Where does this come from? What broke me at which point in my life? And how can I fix this? Yeah, it, I think it's like, because freestyle or free flow or free thought type writing, it's, you're right that it's both. It's really almost that perfect merging of your deep, free, intuitive space and the analytical space. But it's not it's not so much caught in the same rigors as especially I would say modern storytelling, which can almost be formulaic, you know, if you're really, really structured. Okay. And of course you and I are both really into Jungian psychology and shadow work and all that. Would you indulge the listeners a little bit here who maybe aren't familiar with shadow work? Do you want to explain how you discovered that and what it means to you? You know, I'm not actually sure anymore when I discovered that. Um, it's kind of like self-therapy, I think you might think about it. So um, everyone has a shadow, right? It just it doesn't really mean like a demon that lives inside you. For those of you worried that we're being satanic or anything. <laughs> um, it really just means that you sit down with those aspects of yourself. Or maybe you go for a walk, you know, but, but whichever works for you. And you basically address those parts of yourself like self-doubt or imposter syndrome, for example, and you try to figure out where they've come from, what's caused them in you. You try to figure out how you can fix them so that you can start to heal yourself. Or it might be something like realizing that maybe you were racist in that one conversation you had today and you don't, you didn't mean to be, obviously, but it happened anyway. So again, you can then sit down with yourself and explore where that came from. If this is something that you really believe or why you said it and how you might be able to fix this. And I mean, for me personally, I'm also trying to address my misophonia with this, which has been interesting. <laughs> and um, yeah, so it's basically just you sitting down with your demons, if you like, you know, any of those sort of negative aspects of yourself and you embrace all of them and you just accept that they are part of yourself and then you can try to, to start to heal yourself from there. I hope that made sense. <laughs> oh yeah, I think that was beautiful. I don't think, I think Young is applauding somewhere right now because you made it <laughs> You made it really accessible too, which is important. And I love that you summarized all of that with emphasizing acceptance of self, because I feel like, I feel like you and I might've even talked about this, the feeding your demons meditation. No, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with that. Go on. Oh, okay, cool. I think you'll love it. It's a, as far as I know, I think it is a form of a Buddhist meditation where you 
it is shadow work. You visualize a shadow of yourself. You let it kind of materialize in your mind, you know, as a monster or demon or some kind of creature and you talk to it, you engage with it and you ask it what it needs. And then you visualize giving it what it needs. And with enough time and practice, it'll transform, you know, into an ally, something that's really beneficial and helpful to you. And I did that quite a lot a few years ago and learned some really important things, especially I think about my rage. And it's the same thing. And it's that idea that with most of these entities that I engaged with, when I asked them what they needed, overwhelmingly, most of them just said they needed love, they needed attention, or they needed acceptance. Yeah, I think that's probably what it comes down to most of the time, isn't it? Just more self-love and more self-acceptance. And I will definitely try that. You're right. I do love the sound of this. And I feel like it's also a more almost intuitive method. So if you're, you know, story overdosed, you can kind of relax more into that visualization as well. And it's funny because I, I love that you also took shadow work into a place of finding accountability for yourself, because I think ultimately that's what shadow ownership is. I think we tend to act out in our shadow when we're not yet owning it, which I know is why I still struggle a lot with anger, expressing anger effectively or expressing it at all, because it's still something I'm not comfortable owning. Do you have some element of shadow like that, that you're working on where you're like, I know a certain part of this is mine. Obviously, a lot of it just belongs to the world too, but I'm still kind of reticent to let myself identify with that part of shadow. I'm not sure if I have anything that I can think of quite like that. Um, there is one that I've been struggling to unpack a little bit because I don't really know exactly where it came from. It might just be the collective unconscious, to be honest. But... I've realized that I have a lot of suspicion, maybe, <laughs> against men specifically. I don't know why or where it's come from, because I don't remember anything ever happening, you know, that would make me go, oh, yeah, that's the one. This guy really hurt me. And I can't think of anything like that. And um, so I'm, I've been trying to unpack where this mistrust comes from because I realized that it actually infects quite a lot. So, for example, if you're watching TV, maybe we're cooking. Um, no, maybe we're watching a cooking competition because we love that. We love a competition show. Um, guilty pleasure. <laughs> um, I realized that if, if there's someone on there and usually this will be a man where I just you know, I will see his face and just go, I don't trust this guy. And I don't really know why that is, but I will then instantly be biased against him for the entire thing until he leaves. And I know that this is very unfair of me, but I don't know where this has come from. So I'm trying to unpack that. So maybe this actually does fit your question quite well. Um, yeah, I don't know where this has come from. I'm almost tempted to say that this has got to be some past life trauma because I just can't place it in anything I remember. Um, except maybe the collective unconscious, you know, where women have always been told to be um, careful with men and, you know, to trust their instincts in that regard. But generally, I don't know. And I'm working on this. 
Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. I feel like that just opened up such a valuable space. You know, we're we're relating to listeners that, you know, you have permission to discuss the things that might be uncomfortable or discuss the things you can't quite understand. And I love that you're relating it, you know, to the collective as well as to possible past lives. And then you can also attribute it to, you know, genetic memory and genetic traumas because I feel like ultimately they're all the same thing to one degree or another, or at least they're all certainly working together. And yeah, opening up on my side of things, I can relate to that a lot in terms of my struggle to feel comfortable with feminine people. That's always been an issue for me. And that's probably also been a struggle I contribute somewhat to my own gender identity issues. I don't even want to call them issues anymore because I think I'm pretty at peace with being a gender fluid human. But the way that you're expressing it, you know, about your, I think you use the term suspicion about men, that really, really resonated with me with feminine folks, that it's often just been hard for me to relate to them, you know, and it's something I don't try to overthink too much, because it's like, well, we relate to who we relate to, it's not a huge deal. But like you said, you need to be cognizant if it's actually impacting interpersonal relations, even if it is just something kind of proxy, like you're describing how your bias could in, inflict, you know, on a just a viewership with a show. But for me, I also have to be honest about my ability to sustain and maintain healthy friendships and how there has been much more of a struggle to continue those with feminine folks. So again, I just really thank you. I think what we just did <laughs> was a beautiful illustration of how shadow work helps everyone because you opened up about this little thing where you're like and I think you owned it beautifully you're like yeah it's a thing I don't really know where it comes from but it's a thing you know and because you did that I just felt like all of this stuff coming up in me about my own struggles with the feminine and you made it a safe space for me to share that too so thank you of course I always want to be you know a safe space for everyone anyway so I'm happy that you feel safe with me I feel very happy to hear that. <laughs> um, while hearing you talk about your own difficulties with feminine people, maybe it's quite similar for me in that regard because, you know, you've mentioned that you struggle to make friends with feminine people, for example, and I've noticed that I immediately have up a barrier when I'm around masculine people or men because I think, well, I know we have, I've met some people who who are transgender, who are going from feminine to masculine. And I didn't have the same barrier up with them, which is really interesting. I should dig into that. <laughs> but, you know, I've, for example, I've noticed that most of my friends are female. And it's not that I'm specifically trying to not make friends with masculine people. It's just, I don't know if it just hasn't come up as much, or if I just meet more women or people who identify as women but um yeah maybe there is some kind of conscious effort there where I just feel more comfortable with women I don't know it's a lot to unpack it is and it's super interesting that I have this like yang to your yin with this yes. kind of social complex and I, I think that's so valuable to us both because then we can both a spouse on like the same issue, but a different angle. And I think that helps 
reduce the trigger points at it because it's like, oh, this is something that can happen on either side and that's okay. You know, like you said, there's not necessarily anything wrong with having more female friends or female identified friends than male friends. Cause yeah, same here. Like most of my, especially like close and long-term friends are masculine or male identified. And, but you're right that it, and that's the power of shadow. I think is that it's true that some things are just circumstantial contributors and that's totally okay. And we shouldn't, you know, analyze to the brink of exhaustion. But I think the power of shadow is in recognizing, well, what part of me is influencing this, you know, and, and is this something I need to make peace with or explore or yeah, healthily integrate. So I have a more balanced social circle or whatever it is. And like you say, it's a weird little game. I think that's the fun thing about shadow too. We think shadow's just out there to bite us, but I think ultimately shadow really likes to play. Yes, definitely. And this is part of the joy, maybe, of shadow work. You know, I think people tend to be a bit tense around it and be a bit scared of it because ultimately it can be really unpleasant and it can be very uncomfortable. But, you know, I think to realize that there are all these little things that might be influencing us on a daily basis, that once you realize what those are and how they might be almost tying with us, you know, can be really healing to dive into that and try to work with it and integrate those into yourself in a healthy way so that you can accept yourself fully or more fully. Yeah, even for things that aren't readily resolved or don't have an easy fix, there's there's such a freedom in just being able to say, I'm a super judgmental person. And I use that one because that is definitely <laughs> one of my biggest shadows. Actually, this is a little bit of a, of a diversion, but uh, my family and I were doing a, like, what Harry Potter, like Hogwarts house are you quiz, which was really, really fun. And it was super fun. If you're interested, I'll send you the link. And there is this, it, it was like a really beautifully written quiz, actually. And one of the questions was like, what's your worst trait? Be honest. And there was one that just hit me to my core. And I, I did select it. It was basically, it said something to the effect of like, deep down, I know or feel like I'm better than people, even though deep down, I also feel like I'm the worst person I know. And I was just like, oh, oh, I feel that. <laughs> right? Like, how did you pluck that superiority, inferiority thing out of my brain? The best <laughs> and the worst. Don't know how I can elevate and degrade myself like that, but yep. <laughs> yeah, I think I probably have pretty, I probably have the same flaw. <laughs> you know, not, not to say that we feel superior about, above everyone all the time, but. Yeah, it's, it probably is there. And as I'm starting to learn more about astrology, it apparently is a very Aquarian trait. So I can just blame that my stars are standing wrong. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, likewise, it's just more shadow work to do, which is always great. <laughs> now, we've gotten a lot into how you explore shadow work in your personal life, which is so valuable and beautiful. And I'm wondering how much that informs your artistic life and your artistry and how you explore characters. Well, I, I feel like there are two questions there. So let me start with the first question. Um, well, I'm hoping that by exploring where my self-doubt comes from and where my imposter syndrome comes from, 
is ultimately going to help me be a more confident writer and maybe that I can be really free in what I'm writing without worrying too much. And ironically, I don't really worry that much as I'm writing. It tends to come later when I've already had nine people tell me that what I've written is the best thing they've ever read, but then there was one person who hates everything, so suddenly you question everything, right? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm hoping that through shadow work I can get myself to a point where I don't have that anymore, where I can just acknowledge that it's there and then wave it on and be done with it <laughs> for the day. That would be great. And... Um, I'm using this in my characters a little bit. You know, we've mentioned the Bloodwist trilogy earlier. My main character there, Yua, has a very literal representation of her own shadow that she needs to learn to accept and work with and integrate into herself to become a more truthful version of herself. So... This is how I've addressed it in the book, by putting a literal demon into my character and having her figure out how she can work with it and accept it as part of herself. That's been really fun, actually, because when I first started writing that series, that was not the intention. <laughs> it just happened. Really? Because that's an element in Blood Wisp that I just loved. It was like this fantastical illustration like you said a very literal illustration of shadow and that's something that just kind of developed when you're developing the world or the character yeah it wasn't really a plan so the uh, my original idea came after I had written the relics of Arzak trilogy I knew that I wanted to do a little bit more in that world because I created some countries that I hadn't really spent any time in yet so I really wanted to write something in Midoka, so I then asked myself, right, what would be the most interesting character to write in that world? Write someone who doesn't have any magic, because everyone in Madoka just has magic. It's just a thing. It's their thing. So Yua doesn't have any, or doesn't seem to have any magic of her own, so she's already, you know, an interesting main character because she doesn't really seem to fit in, and she has some struggles with this, surely. And then somewhere out of that... Um, her shadow was born because I asked myself why doesn't she have magic what happened and you know not wanting to spoil anything but it's all related to um, the very literal shadow that she has and part of her journey is accepting it as a part of herself and realizing that actually she does have magic but it is her own kind of magic that nobody else has Oh, that's so true in the book. And I definitely recommend it. It's the one book of your, you know, prolific portfolio I've read so far. And I so recommend it to everyone listening. And I mean, you just took it to that broad place of truth, you know, because to me, that's what self-development is. It's about finding your inner magic and finding out how to run with it and tame it, you know, and work it in the world in a way that benefits you and others. And I feel that's exactly what Yua is trying to do in that book. Is that the first book of that trilogy, just to confirm? Yes, that's the first one. So as we're recording this back in July, I've just published the first sequel and I'm currently editing the final book in the series. That is so exciting. I'm looking forward to reading them both. Now, when you embark on a trilogy, for example, like that, 
do you, is it mostly just a matter of discovery? Like you kind of discovered the first book or by the time you finished the first book, did you already know where Yua was going and where she would end up? It's a bit of both. And actually my approach there has changed massively since my first book. Um, God, it's changed so much. But I mean, this series is actually a bit of an outlier in that regard because when I first started writing it, it was going to be a novella trilogy. And when my critique partners went over it, they've mentioned that the three novellas didn't really feel like three separate books. They felt more like one story. And they were right because my critique partners are brilliant and I'm very grateful to have them on my team. So I actually had to take a really big step back and replot everything. Um, I'm mostly a plotter, but also I leave everything a lot of freedom and wiggle room. So yeah, that was really interesting. And I sincerely hope I never have to put myself through that again. <laughs> but yeah, I basically rewrote the first book quite strongly to make it read like one story. And then the second and third one, I basically had to start over with completely which was really f fun. <laughs> it was really hard. That was a big challenge. Um, yeah, so I think partially why I'm now mostly tempted to start writing Esther's first sequel is because I'm just very over this one. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in this world, and while I love the characters very much, there is also such a thing as too much time spent in one world. <laughs> And again, we come to that place of us conscientious folks having such fun challenges. <laughs> but it's true. I, again, I think that you have such a, a balance, even when you described yourself as being, you know, mostly a plotter, but then having that wiggle room. I think that's just idyllic. Like when we're talking about balancing, you know, the wildness of the muse, you know, with that dedication and order of the scribe you know I feel like that for me certainly is my ideal maybe for people who are a little more lending into chaos they might prefer to be mostly a pantser with a loose guideline or something which is legit too but I think either way the strongest story comes from a healthy balance of both I agree oh that's certainly how it works for me I tend to have an outline um, I write my first draft in Scrivener, so I actually have index cards for everything, for every chapter. But likewise, while I'm writing, if I think, oh, actually, this is going in a direction I didn't expect, I'm going to need one or two chapters to put this in, I just add another few index cards and then I, I might just add a couple of quick notes, but, you know, it's flexible in that, you know, that I don't think, oh, but I've got my outline and I have to stick to it or or else. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's very flexible in that. If anything else comes up, or if my characters tell me I'm wrong about something, or they want to explore something different, then we can do that. And I find so often that I don't really know my characters until I start writing them. So some things are bound to change, just because I didn't fully know them before that. Again, Esther and Bonnie are um, exceptions there because they are so heavily based on myself and my best friend and found sister but for all other characters that's very true 
Oh, you know, I just love uh, speaking with you, Serena, because you say so much so effectively, you know, you'll just, you'll talk for a little bit and I'll just kind of find myself lost in what you're saying because you take things into so many different directions, which is just super, super fun. And it just reminds me how good conversation is for us. It's like I can feel various neural pathways lighting up in my brain from just listening to you talk, which is awesome. But then it also leaves me kind of bereft of questions. But thankfully, I do have a template I can refer to as well. (laughs) I'm so happy that you feel that way. I feel quite honored because I know on my own show that my favorite chats are the ones that made me as the host feel exactly like what you just described. So I'm so over the moon that you feel like that talking to me. I'm so happy. I think I've peaked. This is my podcast peak. (laughs) I don't know, because I definitely want you on for part two. So yeah, we'll save the peak, (laughs) I hope. And I mean, obviously, you're, you're prolific in your philosophy and that informs so much of your art and of course you're also a really prolific writer you started writing your first book around 11 years old which is so cool for me because I wrote my first novel at that age and then what's really cool about your journey is you completed your debut in university so how much did your voice change and grow in that expanse of time okay so it's not quite as simple as that. And I really don't want anyone listening to think that I knocked out 120,000 words when I was 11. That didn't happen. <laughs> um, so the first things I wrote were actually really small short stories. I remember my mom would take me to work with her over my summer break. And I wrote little short stories for all of her colleagues. <laughs> um, they'd be like, I don't know, maybe, maybe like half an A4 page long. So, you know, nothing massive, but that's the first memory I have of something I've written bringing joy to someone else. So that's quite a powerful memory, probably, that I don't think or talk about often enough or that I don't give enough credit to, because it probably did shame me a lot. And then that first book that you mentioned, I really overthought everything. And again, please don't think that I wrote a 120,000 word novel when I was 11, because that did not happen. (laughs) Um, What it actually was, uh, I had a really, really thin notebook. I'm not even sure if I can call it a notebook because it was really flappy and really thin. Um, Kind of more something that you might use in elementary school, maybe in in maths or whatever lesson. And I hand wrote that, but I kind of got like a few chapters into the beginning. And then I had no idea what was supposed to happen after that. So I wrote the end and I I put in something at the end that I thought would be really cool if I could mirror that somewhere in the middle. So I kind of had that awareness of story, but I did not know what to do with the middle. So I just didn't write it. (laughs) Oh, and I remember I made up uh, okay, so I I made up like maybe one or two words in a language for it. I don't want you to think that I invented an entire language when I was 11, because again, that did not happen. It was just a couple of words or so. And I remember I told my mom about it and she was like, okay, and? I was like, oh, <laughs> this is disappointing. I thought you'd be proud of me, like maybe she'd buy me a book or something, but this is fine, don't worry about it. It's not, it's, it's like two words. It's not even that impressive, I guess. But... <laughs> 
But I did this thing in the story where I really overthought everything to the point where I described the garden of that family in such painful detail down to every bush and where everything was located because in my head someone one day might adapt this little story of mine into a movie and they would need to know exactly where everything was <laughs> so that was my first book sort of <laughs> and uh, well i was then going to go on to the next part of your question which was the debut that i wrote later on <laughs> okay so again that's a bit more complicated i kind of finished my first book the first full-length one that i've written though don't ask me how many words i had i don't remember i believe my boyfriend has saved a copy just in case i might ever be brave enough to look at it again <laughs> i haven't so far so he could probably tell you how many words it is i don't remember i i wrote that while i was in college and college is not the same as university where i live it comes before university it's two years um so age-wise that's roughly well i did it later than everyone else because i had moved here from another country so i started roughly two years after other the other students so for me this was roughly aged 18 to 20 that i was at college and that's where i finished my first book and at that time maybe just because it was my first full novel and i was really proud that i'd finished one but i was really bad at taking criticism <laughs> like really bad at taking criticism I remember I gave it to my boyfriend to read over and bless his heart, the man doesn't read, he just doesn't get books. So that he read over it at all, you know, I'm just really grateful that he tried it. But everything that he pointed out to me, be it grammar or a saying I didn't quite write because English wasn't my first language, I defended everything religiously. So <laughs> I, I think I really just wanted him to read it and just love it because I was so proud of having finished my first book. And, you know, instead he went in and said, oh, this is not how the saying goes. You need to change that. Or this is not how that grammar works. And, um, oh, God, bless me. Thank God I didn't know about self-publishing at the time, because this would have been the worst start <laughs> to this. But I sent it to two um agents or publishers in london and one never got back to me fair play i wouldn't have replied to me either <laughs> but the other one was really nice about it and just said that it wasn't right for them at that time which was a really nice way of rejecting it <laughs> so it wasn't until a few years later that i really gave it a good go again by that point i had finished studying at university so we're talking roughly four years later and i realized there were two moments where i realized that i wanted to write one was when i read empress by karen miller that was my revelation book that i read and thought this this is what i want to do and then i had a job interview at the library where i still work now and during the interview, my would-be manager asked me where I saw myself in five years. And it just came to me that I saw myself with a published book. I just knew that if I didn't ever publish any anything I wrote, that if I didn't become an author, I would die with regrets. And that wasn't an option for me. So I just knew that I had to make this happen. So I published my first book, my debut novel, 
while I was working at the university where I'd also studied. <laughs> oh, what a story. And your ability to, you know, it's so funny because you mentioned that sometimes you can get burnt out by stories, but you tell them so beautifully. Even oh, this, thank you. Even, the, I mean, I would call that your origin story, you know, down from that first moment, right, where you, you realized you could spread joy through words, you know, to that little middle forest area. I loved you, you know, talking about the difficulty in finding the middle. That's something I continue to struggle with to this day. And I think we all do, to be honest. It's something that kind of gets easier, but we never quite get over it, do we? Which makes sense because I think it's the middle part of our lives that's most difficult to figure out. Yes. So it's yeah. kind of a microcosm there. And then, of course, your amazing self-awareness and honesty, because I think we were all there at least at one point in our literary development. I think some people honestly just stay there, which is fine, too, you know, if they just don't want to take a super professional route. But, oh, like how much we defend our babies when we're first, first, you know, bringing our babies out into the world, our first children, we just, we protect like fierce bears. And afterwards, we're kind of embarrassed because we're like, oh, yeah, they were a little mangly and pink. They could have used a few inoculations and we <laughs> didn't give it to them. <laughs> well, wait, when my boyfriend read over this draft, this was long before I knew that beta readers were a thing or that editors were necessary or that critique partners exist or or anything like that so I basically gave them the first draft to read and you know he just wanted to be helpful and be supportive but in my mind this book was perfection <laughs> and it it really wasn't and I really admire writers who can come back to that first book they ever finished and polish it until it actually is published ready i don't know where you get that bravery from i don't know if i'll ever want to come back to this book maybe but um yeah i, I don't know that i ever will so i think i'm glad that this wasn't what would then become my actual debut novel and of course, there was also the big disappointment of my mom being very unimpressed that I've invented a whole language. So, <laughs> <laughs> but of course, your mother, your mother is super encouraging. That's one thing I've always loved, you know, and gleaned from our conversations is that she's she's always been like your number one cheerleader, which is just awesome. And yeah, in regards to that first, you know, the first book. I mean, I love what C.S. Lewis once said. You know, he basically was like critics are always going to assume that you wrote everything in the order it was published in. And of course, all of us know that's totally untrue. So of course, that's a great point of consideration. And when it comes to maybe going back to that novel, I mean, I, hilariously, I am still in the process of like rewriting slash editing the first novel I ever wrote, mostly just because I really just I'm still in love with the story and I'm still in love with the characters and I I really respect what I was doing, you know, as a little a little wee one. You know, and I feel like maybe I I possess the wherewithal now to actually turn it into something publishable. But again, you know, first million words are practice and I don't think there's anything wrong with just shelving a first novel because it was your practice and it was perfect for what it was doing. It was showing you oh, hey, I am capable of writing books, which is in of itself amazing. Yes, exactly. And I'm so glad that I eventually came back to it. 
and you know decided to really seriously pursue it because before that it had mostly been something that I did because I enjoyed it although <laughs> I won't lie when I was in college writing this first book which I don't think I even named at the time um I did in my head it would become you know this massive success and then my boyfriend could quit his job and I could just be a full-time author and we would just have the life and it would be fantastic but of course as anyone who's published anything will tell you that doesn't happen and that's why I loved so much what you said about the first one million words of practice that's such a good time frame maybe to give yourself and you know also such a great reminder that you don't have to publish everything you write certainly not the first ever thing in fact maybe please don't <laughs> um not after a lot of revision anyway if you are going to um yeah so i really love that <laughs> oh yeah i mean i did i was blessed in a way in that I did get a decent amount of shorts published, you know, in my later teens. But yeah, I doubt I would want anyone to read those original drafts that were published, you know, on the on those websites and those magazines. And yeah, as for that, you know, the first million words, I mean, I quote that Stephen King maxim frequently. I think I've even quoted it in grant proposals. I've written my joke that I often make is, you know, that's what Stephen King says. And I think I'm coming up to my first million words, you know, we've just begun both you and I, regardless of how much we've written. And I know we've both written a lot, but we are, we're still, we're still babies. You know, we really are. Yes. And in something like writing, I don't think we can ever really perfect what we do because it's just a constant journey. And we are always in, um, just slightly changing our approach. Now with every book, it changes a little bit and no two books are the same. And I mean, I just know that by the time I publish my 20th or my 30th book, my approach will have changed so much again. And the way that I develop my stories will probably look quite different to how it looks right now. And of course, with the Bloodbus trilogy, because it started off as a novella series, that process was so different to how I then later approached plotting the the final, final book in that series. Like really the, the final one this time, that one. So, <laughs> you know, it's just forever shifting and, and changing as we learn more and as we develop as writers. Yes. And that's, I think, the beauty of a series too, is you can really see your own growth alongside the characters, alongside the narration. And I think it's great that you've chosen that format. All right, and let's, uh, I mean, I knew that we would probably almost go over the hour and I think we might, which is fine. But <laughs> I, of course I wanna make sure people can get to your books. So where can people purchase all of these books we've been discussing? I think the easiest way to do this would be via my website because on there I've got links to everything else including the audiobooks and including the box sets and the anthologies I'm in as well so that's just serenalanger.com nice and easy it's just my name plus dot com at the end <laughs> and then from there I've got links to everything else and um yeah that's probably the best way so most of them uh, on Amazon, oh, well, all of them are on Amazon. Well, some of them have also gone wide. Others I've currently got in KU. I don't know what this will look like 
when this episode airs um, because we are doing this ahead of time. But generally, some of my books are in KU. All of them are on Amazon and with some of them have also gone wide. And then there are also box sets. If you don't want to read them one at a time as such, you can just buy the box set and be done with it in, in one purchase. And audiobooks are slowly following as well. So however you want to read them, um, hopefully I've got your preferred format. It sounds like you definitely do. The box set is especially exciting, I think, especially for book collectors. Yes, although I should mention that the box sets I've only got in ebook format because it's not that easy to do a box set and make it look pretty when you self-publish. It's easy enough on um, on the ebook because you don't have any restrictions on there. But when you self-publish a paperback, then you're only actually allowed to have so many pages. <laughs> and if you do a box set of a trilogy plus a prequel novella, then there's a good chance that you're going to exceed that. <laughs> Well, no worries. We got the eBooks for that too, anyway. So that's yeah. I definitely <laughs> think you've you've covered any any medium of interest for our readers and listeners. And is there anything you'd want to say to someone listening who wants to explore their shadow more? Yes, um, I think the most important thing is to not be afraid of it. We all have one. <laughs> um, you might find it easier to start with, or just in general to get a notebook or maybe even record yourself speaking to yourself or to your shadow. I haven't done that. Um, I use a notebook for myself, but I know some people record themselves and just make it a private video on YouTube so they can look over it again and um, pick an aspect of it and learn from that. But again, I haven't done that, so I can't speak for myself. I've only got my own personal notebook. Um, so in Blood Wisp, you are literally fighted out one night with a shadow, very, very literally. Um, we can't do that <laughs> because it's not an actual demon that's living inside us. So we can't do it in quite such an impressive way. Um, but, you know, I think something like a notebook might be really helpful for you. And I think are a lot of your listeners writers as well. I imagine so. I'm trying to just cover the expanse of creatives in general, but... Yeah, so as a creative, you might find it easier to do something like that. Or maybe you could paint it. I don't know how that might go. I haven't tried that. But, you know, if that's your preferred medium, that might be worth a shot. And one really, really important thing to remember is that no one ever needs to see that notebook or listen to that recording or see that painting. This is just for yourself. So really be brutally honest with yourself when you sit down to do shadow work. Don't hide behind comfortable lies because the truth hurts, because it won't get you anywhere. And if you're still worried that someone might one day come across what you've written or, or painted, you can always burn it, <laughs> which might in itself be quite cleansing, you know, um, to finish that up. So, and cut yourself some slack. Life is hard and confronting yourself is even harder. Not everyone tries to do this. So if you go for it, then you're already winning, I think. Just be brave, cut yourself some slack, and don't be afraid of your shadow because we all have one. Beautiful, Serena. I especially love life is hard and confronting yourself is even harder. Beautiful words of wisdom to share. Thank you so, so much for being here. My pleasure. As you said, we should do this again. <laughs> 
Definitely. I am always happy to stop by. <laughs> I hope so. Second season, definitely. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. That was Serena Langer. Check out her books and listen to her podcast, The Writing Sparrow, on Spotify and everywhere else. As always, this is C.E. Hoffman, and you're listening to Scribbles and Spills. Follow us on Twitter at ScribSpillPod. Stay creative.